The internet is not the internet is not a big truck. The internet is not something that you just dump something on. The internet is not the internet is not a big truck. The internet is a series of tools. The internet is not the internet is not a big truck. The internet is not something that you just dump something on. The internet is not the internet is not a big truck. The internet Streaming stuff on the, on, the, on the internet. Why? Tubes. The internet is tubes. Connections to sewers. Massive commercial purposes. Big truck. Long distance. It's tubes. Angle of tubes. Enormous series of tubes. Your own personal internet. The World Wide Web. The internet is tubes. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this fifth day of April, 2009. I'd like to welcome back all my regular listeners and invite all of my listeners, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, where you can stay up to date with our latest articles, videos, and interviews And of course, sign up for free to our RSS feeds so you can stay up to date with all of the updates to our website, or sign up to our email list to receive updates whenever we add a new podcast episode or a new installment of our documentary, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. Without further ado, let's get into today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from Bloomberg.com, April 3rd, 2009. G20 shapes new world order with lesser role for U.S. markets. Global leaders took their biggest steps yet towards a new world order that's less U.S.-centric, with a more heavily regulated financial industry and a greater role for international institutions and emerging markets. At the end of a summit in London, Policymakers from the Group of 20 yesterday delivered a regulatory blueprint that French President Nicolas Sarkozy said turned the page on the Anglo-Saxon model of free markets by placing stricter limits on hedge funds and other financiers. The leaders also pledged to triple the resources of the International Monetary Fund and to hand China and other developing economies a greater say in the management of the world economy. It's the passing of an era, said Robert Hormatz, vice chairman of Goldman Sachs International, who helped prepare summits for Presidents Gerald R. Ford, Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan. The U.S. is becoming less dominant, while other nations are gaining influence. Our second real news story today comes from theindependent.co.uk, 3rd of April, 2009. Obama hails the New World Order. Gordon Brown declared that a $1 trillion package to stimulate economic growth agreed at yesterday's G20 summit in London will ensure that the world pulls out of recession more quickly. The $1 trillion will be made available to countries that run into trouble via the International Monetary Fund, IMF, the World Bank, and World Trade Organization, which will all be beefed up. Half the money will come from IMF loans, with $250 billion to finance trade deals and a further $250 billion from the IMF's currency reserve. 
Last night, British ministers said the real significance of yesterday's agreement was not the $1 trillion package, but the enhanced role it gave to world institutions like the IMF, whose budget will triple to $750 billion. A new world financial order has been born, almost by accident because of this crisis, one cabinet minister said. These bodies have been revamped. Now they need to raise their game. Our third real news story comes from theaustralian.news.com.au, April 3rd, 2009. Rudd bears witness to new global order as Obama shines on debut. The economy became finally and truly global overnight when the governments of the world admitted it could only be managed by joint action. No more, they agreed at the meeting of G20 leaders in London, could a single nation act in isolation. The interconnectedness of national economies and the ever-increasing mobility of capital meant there was only one economy, that of the globe. This is why UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown emerged from the summit declaring the birth of a new world order. We have resolved that from today, we will together manage the process of globalization, Mr. Brown said. We have agreed that in doing so, we will build a more sustainable and more open and fairer global society. It was an inevitable conclusion for 20 world leaders struggling with the sudden collapse of global growth sparked by the collapse of subprime lending markets in the U.S. last year. Each came to London burdened by stunted economic growth and public anger about how lax economic regulation in the U.S. has caused a crisis that has reverberated around the world and, according to the OECD, will leave one in ten people jobless within a year. Kevin Rudd will return to Australia satisfied with his performance in London. The Prime Minister was clearly across the issues and achieved his aim of being seen as an activist leader of a middle-power nation with the ambition to punch above its diplomatic weight. While Mr. Rudd is not the father of the new global order, he was in the room when it was delivered. Our final real news story comes from Infowars.com, 4th of April 2009. Black Bloc provocateurs set Strasbourg Hotel on fire. Protesters demonstrating against a NATO summit in Strasbourg set fire to a hotel in the city near the River Rhine on Saturday, AFP journalists witnessed. Described as hardline, the Black Bloc provocateurs, armed with metal bars, also wrecked a chapel, a pharmacy, an empty police post, and other buildings at the French end of the Europe Bridge connecting Strasbourg with Germany, according to AFP. In order to demonize the anti-NATO protests as the work of violent anarchists, agents provocateurs, the New York Times described participants as a mix of anti-globalization and anti-military activists who set a hotel and border post on fire, while riot police used tear gas to get them back. Earlier in the week, anarchist agents provocateurs were dispatched during the G20 with orders to smash up the Royal Bank of Scotland. The corporate media used images of this vandalism to demonize nonviolent demonstrators. The British authorities seem to have little problem with allowing a group of violent black bloc anarchists to smash up the RBS building while provoking police yesterday, despite this group announcing their target in advance. Yet a legitimate anti-poverty organization has had its accreditation to protest at the G20 removed on the orders of Downing Street, wrote Paul Joseph Watson on April 2nd. 
The authorities knew that the building was a prime target, and yet it was the only one in the street not boarded up. A cafe across the street was boarded up, and yet the RBS building was left completely vulnerable to attack. Welcome to episode 82 of the Corbett Report. Goodbye, Australia. You may not be aware, you may not know it's happening, but right now, an attack is shaping up. An altogether new threat from an impersonal entity which will require a war on an abstract noun. You've had the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on terror, and we all know how successfully the governments of the Western world have waged those wars. But now we have a new war, one with left cover. The war on the Internet. Democratic representative from West Virginia, John D. Rockefeller IV, usually known as Jay, helpfully explained in a Commerce Secretary confirmation meeting from last month. And it... I mean, not trying to be dramatic about it, but when, when, the, when the Internet was invented, everybody fell flat in their face. They were so thrilled. And the world began to do business in a different way. Now, both the President Bush's Director of National Intelligence, Mike McConnell, who I greatly respect, and President Obama's Director of National Intelligence, Admiral Blair, who I greatly respect, have labeled cybersecurity perpetrated through the internet as the number one national hazard of attack on the homeland in West Virginia, on, in West Virginia, America, anywhere else. So, I mean, it really, it really almost makes you ask the question, would it have been better if we'd never invented the internet and had to use paper and pencil or whatever? And that's a stupid thing to say. But it's, it has genuine consequence because it's on the Internet that these acts of shutting down, you know, they have the television saying that ads every day saying that the uh, de Department of Defense is, is um, attacked three million times a day, and it's true. Um, everybody is attacked. Anybody can do it. People say, well, it's China and Russia, but there could be, you know, some kid in Latvia uh, doing the same thing. I mean, it's an individual act. It doesn't require a sleeper cell. It doesn't require any, uh, you know, ammonia or explosives. It's just an act. And um, yet it's an act which can shut this country down, mm -hmm. shut down its electricity system, its banking system, shut down really anything that we have to offer. It is an awesome problem. That's right. John D. Rockefeller IV just told you that the Internet should never have existed. Why? Well, because of the threat to cybersecurity, of course. Yes, indeed. Well, here we go. We are starting the new round of Internet censorship, cybersecurity, the Cyber 9-11 scare, and the run-up to what's going to be the ultimate battle for the Internet. This, of course, is a topic that we've been covering on the Corbett Report basically since its inception. So much of the background to this will already be familiar to many of my listeners. 
Newcomers to the Corbett Report might be interested in checking out a CorbettReport.com article from December 29th, 2007, Japan Clamps Down on Internet, or going back to listen or re-listen to episode 46 of this podcast, The Internet is Dead, Long Live the Internet. To familiarize yourself with some of the information that we've covered on this subject in the past, of course there's also our videos, Infowars, Battle for the Internet, or 10 Ways the Internet is Under Attack, which cover much of the background to this story in great detail. In short, in many countries in the Western world, those government officials in charge of regulating the Internet often have no clue what the Internet even is. Well, there's one company now, you, you, can, you can get sign up and you can get a, a, a movie delivered to your house daily. By, by, by subscription, by, by delivery service, okay? Uh, and, and currently it comes to your house, it put in the mailbox when you get home, and, and, and your monthly, you change your order. But you pay for that, right? This service is now going to go through the Internet, and what you do is you just go to, to a place on the Internet, and, and you, you order your, your movie, and guess what? You can order ten of them, and, and it's delivered to you, and this delivery charge is free, Right? Ten movies streaming across that, that inter internet, and what happens to your, your own personal internet? I, I just the other day got inter internet was sent by my staff at 10 o'clock in the morning on Friday. I got it yesterday. Why? Because it got tangled up with all of these things that are going on the internet commercially. And, and here we have this one situation where an enormous entities want to use the internet for their purpose to save money for do doing what they're doing now. They use FedEx. They use the, the delivery services. They, they use the mail. They, 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 they deliver in other ways, but they want to deliver vast amounts of information over the Internet. And again, the Internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. It would be funnier if it wasn't true and if it wasn't representative of many of the people in government who are actually in charge of regulating the thing of which they know so little. But I suppose what else is new? Nothing really. And of course the bought and paid for politicians therefore become the vessels for vested private interests to have their way with their uh, stupidity and ignorance of the subject by ramming things through Congress that will potentially end net neutrality. But other than that, there are a number of other attack vectors on the internet, and one that's been shaping up as a media meme recently has got to be the cyber 9-11 cybersecurity cyber terrorism threat that Jay Rockefeller has been pimping so hard in the last month. And an indication of the beginning of the trajectory of that media meme can be found from an August 5th, 2008 Infowars.net story under the headline, Law Professor, Counterterrorism Czar told me there is going to be an I-911 and an I-Patriot Act, which reads in part, quote, Amazing revelations have emerged concerning already existing government plans to overhaul the way the Internet functions in order to apply much greater restrictions and control over the web. 
Lawrence Lessig, a respected law professor from Stanford University, told an audience at this year's Fortune's Brainstorm Tech Conference in Half Moon Bay, California, that there's going to be an I-911 event, which will act as a catalyst for a radical reworking of the law pertaining to the Internet. Lessig also revealed that he had learned during a dinner with former government counterterrorism czar Richard Clark that there is already in existence a cyber equivalent of the Patriot Act, an iPatriot Act, if you will, and that the Justice Department is waiting for a cyber terrorism event in order to implement its provisions. End quote. Anyone who was listening to that article should have shivers running down their spine right now. And, of course, this meme has been dutifully picked up by the lapdog media, who have been pumping it especially vociferously as of late. In fact, even last month, just shortly before Jay Rockefeller's now infamous pronouncement that the internet should never have existed... The ZDNet.co.uk was already picking up the story of government may track all UK Facebook traffic from the 18th of March 2009. Quote, the UK government is considering the mass surveillance and retention of all user communications on social networking sites, including Facebook, MySpace and Bebo. Home Office Security Minister Vernon Coker said on Monday that the EU Data Retention Directive, under which ISPs must store communications data for 12 months, does not go far enough. Communications such as those on social networking sites and instant messaging could also be monitored, he said. End quote. And, of course, even this past week has seen a lot of brouhaha over social networking and the web, including this story from CNN.com. From March 27th, 2009, protesters, police, go online in G20 battle. Quote, social networking websites are set to play a crucial role in protests ahead of next week's G20 meeting of world leaders in London, as demonstration organizers and police use Twitter and Facebook as key sources of real-time information and intelligence. Marina Pepper one of the organizers of G20 Meltdown said that Twitter, the blogging tool that allows short updates to be filed, published, and read via cell phones, would be used to coordinate the protests and warn participants of possible trouble. End quote. Now, of course, this ties directly into the British Ministry of Defense report, which we've covered earlier that talked about brain chips and flash mobs, which of course would be organized via these types of social networking tools to converge large amounts of people on spaces suddenly in what would be riots that would have to be contained, of course, by the British military. Again, of course, all of the links to all of the documents that I talk about in today's episode can be found listed in order of time index at CorbettReport.com under the Episodes tab on the documentation link for today's episode. Now, of course, all of these stories, and literally thousands more, which I really don't have time to get into in today's episode, have converged on what Jay Rockefeller was talking about in that opening clip, and which is now being unveiled in fact, just three days ago, on April 2nd, 2009, MotherJones.com had this article, Should Obama Control the Internet? A new bill would give the president emergency authority to halt web traffic and access private data. Quote, 
Should President Obama have the power to shut down domestic internet traffic during a state of emergency? Senators John Rockefeller and Olympia Snow think so. On Wednesday, they introduced a bill to establish the Office of the National Cybersecurity Advisor, an arm of the executive branch that would have vast power to monitor and control internet traffic to protect against threats to critical cyber infrastructure. That broad power is rattling some civil libertarians. The Cybersecurity Act of 2009 gives the president the ability to declare a cybersecurity emergency and shut down or limit internet traffic in any critical information network in the interest of national security. The bill does not define a critical information network or a cybersecurity emergency. That definition would be left to the president. The bill does not only add to the power of the president, it also grants the Secretary of Commerce access to all relevant data concerning critical networks without regard to any provision of law, regulation, rule, or policy restricting such access. This means he or she can monitor or access any data on private or public networks without regard to privacy laws. Rockefeller made cybersecurity one of his key issues as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which he chaired until last year. He now heads the Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, which will take up this bill. We must protect our critical infrastructure at all costs, from our water to our electricity, to banking, traffic lights, and electronic health records. The list goes on, Rockefeller said in a statement. Snow echoed her colleague, saying... If we fail to take swift action, we, regrettably, risk a cyber Katrina. But the wide powers outlined in the Rockefeller Snow legislation has at least one internet advocacy group worried. The cybersecurity threat is real, says Leslie Harris, head of the Center for Democracy and Technology, CDT, but such a drastic federal intervention in private communications technology and networks could harm both security and privacy. End quote. Well, here it comes. In earnest, we see the ramp-up to what can only be described as the perfect setup for an I-911, which is to say a false flag event, which is either engineered or allowed to happen by the very people who would stand to benefit from such an attack actually taking place, which is the people who want more control and more regulation over the free flow of information across the internet. And the best way to do that, of course, is to allow some sort of cybersecurity threat to occur, and then to use the public outcry at such an event to ram legislation like this through Congress. Indeed, it's difficult to see how the Cybersecurity Act of 2009 will gain any traction with the general public unless there is such an event, so definitely, this is an area that we will be keeping our eye on in the future. But another important part of this general, the internet is dangerous meme, also includes much more mundane risks. And that, of course, is just regular crime on the internet. Of course, these types of crimes range from identity theft to child pornography. But it seems that the Australian government has a great new idea for stopping such illegal activity on the web. The internet has revolutionized the way we communicate, 
do business and entertain ourselves. But there's a dark side to the cyberspace revolution. The growth of child pornography on the internet over the years has been dramatic. Um, you know, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of images of children being sexually abused. There are rules that affect what you see on television. Unlike the rest of the media, the internet remains largely unregulated. But the Rudd government wants more control, with plans for a compulsory filter between Australian internet users and the rest of the world. The only places that have mandatory filtering at the moment are Saudi Arabia and China. The idea that somehow the internet, as another form of uh, uh, communication, should be exempted from all of these social and moral controls, I find bizarre and, and repugnant. It's a proposal which has sparked a passionate debate on the final frontier of free speech, as well as a backlash from reluctant internet service providers. The basic problem with mandatory filtering of the internet in Australia is that it just plain won't work. Several Western countries, including the UK, France and Canada, have introduced voluntary internet filtering. In Australia, the government wants filtering to be mandatory to block child pornography and other illegal sites. Filtering everything that goes over the internet, that is simply impractical. It would be horrendously expensive. Uh, it's likely to significantly uh, reduce the speeds that people get on the internet. The government is now asking internet providers to take part in live filtering trials to block 10,000 banned websites. The country's biggest internet provider, Telstra, is yet to announce whether it will participate. What worries me greatly is that if people give the impression that with mandatory filtering uh, the internet will, will some, somehow magically become safe, uh, there's no silver bullet as far as the internet is concerned. Michael Malone from IINet says filters are easy to get around and notorious for being inaccurate. They all suffer from the same problems as, as any other solution in that they sometimes block content they shouldn't and sometimes of course they let through things that they, they shouldn't. But we love the net and we want to set it free. He says there are many ways to exchange information that bypasses the World Wide Web altogether, such as peer-to-peer -peer software connecting computers directly to one another and, as systems analyst Robert Hudson explains, virtual private networks are also immune to filters. That's right, the Australian government is now working on a plan to mandatorily filter the web in an attempt to save us all from child pornography and bestiality, among other things like websites offering information about abortions and the homepages of dentists in Queensland province in Australia and other such objectionable material. Well, to pick up the thread of this story, let's turn to an article that was written on the 20th of February 2008 on Libertus.net under the headline, AU Government Mandatory ISP Filtering Censorship Plan. Quote, The Australian Federal Labor Government, which was elected on 24th of November 2007, has a plan to force all Australian ISPs to implement server-based filtering blocking systems to block adults' access on a compulsory, non-optional basis to content unsuitable for children, as well as content the government deems unsuitable for adults, on a secret blacklist compiled by a government agency, the ACMA. 
The Labour government censorship plan has no equivalent in Western democracies, as at April 2009. The Labour government has sought to hide the fact that their plan is to treat adults as if they are children by referring at various times to blocking access to illegal material, prohibited material, refused classification material, inappropriate material, and unwanted material. As a result, many media reports and other commentators have misrepresented the government's stated intentions in incorrectly reporting or implying that adults would be able to opt out of blocking of content that is lawful for adults to access and possess. While, during 2008, the minister frequently referred to non-opt-out ISP-level blocking of prohibited content on ACMA's blacklist, the fact is that such content under Australia's draconian but ineffective internet censorship laws includes material that is lawful to publish, distribute, purchase offline, or view in cinemas in Australia, and which is not illegal for Australians to view on the internet. In late March 2009, presumably in a reaction to widespread criticism of Labour's plan and in hope of reducing the same, the minister commenced referring to blocking of refused classification material. However, contrary to some media reports, he did not say that non-optional blocking would be limited to RC material which is a subset of prohibited content and includes material that is legal to access and possess in the overwhelming majority of Australian states and territories. End quote. In effect, a nine-year-old ACMA blacklist of material deemed unsuitable for the average Australian is about to be made mandatory to be filtered and blocked at the ISP level for all Australians. Now, of course, the official explanation is that this will only apply to unwanted material, but it's not exactly clear what unwanted material is, it's not exactly clear what sites are on this ACMA blacklist, and it's not exactly clear how people can even find out about that in order to get off the blacklist. And one example of that comes from this Absolutely ridiculous story from smh.com.au, the Sydney Morning Herald, March 19th, 2009. Dentist Tuck Shop cited on web blacklist. Quote, the Queensland dentist included on the Australian Communication Regulator's blacklist of prohibited websites has demanded that the list be cleaned up, as he is now being associated with child porn peddlers and sexual violence sites. Whistleblower site WikiLeaks published the top-secret ACMA list today. Websites contained on it will be blocked for all Australians once the government implements its mandatory internet filtering scheme, originally pitched as targeting only illegal content later this year. But, as experts have long warned the government, having a top-secret blacklist of banned sites is dangerous because there is a real danger that Australian businesses could be added to the list in error with little recourse. End quote. Now, there is much background to this story and many pieces of the puzzle to be filled in, so why don't we turn to an excerpt from an interview that I conducted earlier this w week with Jim Stewart of stewartmedia.biz. Stewart Media is an SEO marketing company, which can be found at stewartmedia.biz, and Jim Stewart is the CEO of Stewart Media. He's been an internet consultant since 1995, 
and helped create Australia's first corporate website in the mid-1990s. He's also consulted with national broadcasters in Pakistan, Malaysia, Fiji, Sri Lanka, and Brunei, and appeared on numerous Australian media outlets, including ABC Radio, Network 10, and Channel 9. And it was my honor to talk to him earlier this week about the ACMA blacklist, its history, and the current scheme of mandatorily filtering the internet for all Australians. Of course, the interview can be listened to in its entirety at CorbettReport.com under the Interviews tab, and I would wholeheartedly recommend my listeners do so. But right now, let's listen to an excerpt from my interview with Jim Stewart. Today on the Corbett Report, we're discussing the Australian Communications and Media Authority's Internet Blacklist and its implications. But for those international listeners in the audience who might not know about the topic, why don't you start by explaining what the ACMA is and what it's proposing to do? Yeah, okay. The Australian Communications and Media Authority, which used to just be called the Australian Communications Authority, is a body that's essentially set up to, uh, well, originally that was set up to uh, uh, be the, the, the regulator for telephony. Um, and that was their original, they used to be called Oztel, a lot of people would, would know them as uh, down here. Um, but back in 1999, our previous federal government, which was a, um, a conservative government, uh, they brought in a, uh, an amendment to the Broadcast Services, uh, Services Act, which was basically uh, a blacklist which would be brought out, which the ACMA would monitor and put sites on. So any, any website that didn't uh, meet the Office of Film and Literature classifications, normal classification guidelines, could be blacklisted. Uh, and the actual status is called refused classification. So this doesn't necessarily mean illegal material. It just means material that the Office of Film, Literature and Classification wouldn't normally give a classification to. Uh, and so the government at the time set up the blacklist um, and it basically does absolutely nothing. Back in 1999, we were saying that, look, you know, you've got a blacklist, but it doesn't actually do anything because the first site that they ever blacklisted uh, was a site called teenagers.com.au. It had R-rated content, so this is content that you could normally just go and see at your local cinema, and uh, they blacklisted it. The following day, that same website turned up in the US at the very same domain name. So, you know, all they did was issue a takedown notice to the local ISP where it was being hosted. So they shut down their hosting here and sent it overseas. Um, and this is the ludicrous nature of uh, this whole censorship issue. And the reason that they're doing it is purely to placate certain special inter interest groups who have power in our upper house, in our federal parliament. Um, and it, that's what was happening back then in 1999. It was the, uh, the, uh, the then um, conservative government, federal government, uh, placating a, uh, a, a, a Christian senator who had the balance of power. And today the exact same thing's happening, where we have our, um, our left-wing gov government, or the ALP, doing the exact same thing for another Christian senator, a completely different one this time. Well, so just to be clear, what stage of implementation is this program at? It's already underway or it's being tested at the moment or it's going to be well, developed further? Yeah. Well, what, what happened nine years, uh, ten years ago was the blacklist was, was set up. Now, what our current government is now proposing 
is that they then put in a mandatory internet filter at every ISP in the country so that um, they can then filter out content which they deem to be inappropriate or would be refused classification. So the stage that it's at at the moment is we've still got a ridiculous blacklist. Uh, we don't yet have this mandatory filter at the ISP level, but what will be happening and what they're doing right now is trialling uh, the technology that they're going to use for this filter. Now, two of Australia's largest ISPs have refused to participate in the trial because they've said it's ridiculous, it can't be done, we're not interested. One of those ISPs is, of course, Telstra, who's uh, our largest telco. All right, so bring us up to speed on the recent uproar in Australia caused by the leaking of the ACMA blacklist on WikiLeaks. Yeah, the, the way the blacklist works is that the ACMA don't go out and hunt for content. What actually has to happen is someone has to make a complaint about a particular piece of content. And then the ACMA will then go and look at that website, and then they'll go and show the website to the Office of Film Literature and Classification, and then they'll tell them whether it's refused, refused classification or not, and then they'll blacklist it. What happened uh, a couple of weeks ago is uh, Mr. Clever Trousers down here in, in Melbourne decided that he was going to go and complain about an anti-abortion site, which had some fairly graphic images uh, of abortion on the site. Now, the ACMA looked at the site, sent it over to the OFLC, and they said, yes, it's refused classification. So the ACMA then put it on their blacklist. That caused an uproar in itself. Uh, then at the same time, what was happening, the, the same, I think it was the same person, then went and complained to the ACMA about the, uh, the WikiLeaks website and the leaked Danish blacklist, which they'd posted uh, 12 months earlier on their site. And uh, lo and behold, the ACMA said, yes, we're going to refuse classification to that particular page on the WikiLeaks website. WikiLeaks then got hold of the Australian blacklist and published that. And then WikiLeaks uh, got their, uh, their site, their, their, that page blacklisted, as well as the press release talking about it. Now, the problem with that was, of course, is that as soon as you start banning these things or talking about them in the media, you, all you're doing is putting a spotlight on the very thing that you don't want people to be looking at. And as I said on um, last week in one of my shows, I'd never even heard of WikiLeaks before, and I've been on the internet for a long time. Uh, but, you know, as of last Thursday, there were about 11,000 pages in the Australian domain namespace talking about this WikiLeaks website, and they'd sprung up only in the last month. As of uh, yesterday, there were about 23,000 pages in the Australian domain space talking about this WikiLeaks blacklist. So all of a sudden, all we've done is open up thousands and thousands and thousands of doorways to the most vile content, apparently, that the government doesn't want us to see. So that's where it's at at the moment. And the, the government is taking a lot of flack at the moment, but they're sticking to their guns. They're saying we're going to persist with the trial. Um, there has been a little sort of bit of backing down. You know, Initially, they said that um, the, the this new filter would... Um, protect all our children from the nasty things on the internet. Now they're backing away saying, well, well it's not going to be a silver bullet. Um, but it still doesn't look good. They're still looking at uh, pushing something through. 
And I understand that the uh, government is even going to fine people who even so much as link to the blacklist uh, $11,000 per day. Correct. I mean, this is one of the, you know, the, the, the way the internet fundamentally works is, is with hyperlinking. That's what, that's what makes it the internet. And uh, when the anti-abortion TV site uh, uh, was, and look, this is Kafkaesque in its, in its proportions, when the, abor- uh, when the abortion TV site was uh, blacklisted, someone posted in a forum, they published the email that they got from the ACMA because the ACMA say, says you can actually publish our findings. So that's what he did, put it up in a forum. Then the ACMA contacted the hosting company and said, uh, and issued them an uh, interim l- link delete notice telling them to delete that link from the forum uh, or face $11,000 a day fine. Now, of the 23,000 pages that have gone up in the last week talking about WikiLeaks, I dare say a large amount of those will be linking directly to the blacklist. And this is, this is where it gets ridiculous. There is just no way known in the world that the ACMA could possibly even try to keep up with um, just even one site that was getting linked to, let alone you know, in the millions and billions of pages out there um, that will have offensive content on it. Jim Stewart of StuartMedia.biz Needless to say, there has been much fewer and much protest about this ACMA blacklist among the general Australian public, as evidenced by a recent appearance of the minister in charge of implementing the test which is currently ongoing about this internet filtering plan, That's Senator Stephen Conroy, who recently appeared on an ABC program called Q&A, which allows Australians to interact with members of the Q&A panel to ask questions directly to the people involved. And in this recent episode with Stephen Conroy, the response, according to the host, was overwhelming with the by far the most number of questions ever received by the program. And it certainly seemed from the questions which were aired on the program that it was not a positive response. Let's listen to a short extract from this particular Q&A episode to find out more about how the general Australian public is reacting to this draconian internet censorship scheme. But a lot of people with their hands up. First of all, uh, I want to go to Timothy Wilson. Thank you. Senator, um, I've actually viewed the blacklist on WikiLeaks and I've and you're actually able to click on all the sites on it. And I've noticed that according to that list, you've chosen to use the internet filter to block adult pornography when in fact probably the real risk to children other than child pornography is innocuous sites such as Facebook and chat rooms. Uh, look, firstly, uh, as I said, we've actually not added anything to the list at all. This is the existing law that's been in place for nine years, and it's a list that they go through uh, every few months and they sweep it to try and take ones that have now become redundant and add new ones on. So this is the existing one. We've added nothing. Can I just leap in? So you've got to answer the Facebook question. Uh, but let me just jump in, though. What's going to happen to people who are downloading uh, the, the WikiLeaks site and looking at what's on it, which is effectively banned material, according to you, on a blacklist? Are you going to try and arrest all those people? <laughs> uh, the Commonwealth Police going to be investigating who's no, the, looking the, at that and the, looking the, at their computers the, the, and trying the to system, find it? The system doesn't quite work like that. 
they should take down notices. If, uh, if someone tries to publicise it, people can go and look at some material that's on that list and having a look at it is not a crime. So it's if you... D- it's if you... Is the list? Is this a fabrication of WikiLeaks? No, or is this something first, that you wanted to do in no, the future? As I said, the first... No, no, it said the first list, which is the one that most people make fun of, is not the list. The list had 1,300 things listed on it. This had over 2,000. Now... I don't know where they got that from. People have suggested to me that it came from a company that runs a filter and they themselves had added material to it themselves as part of their corporate operation. But it was not the government list. It included would, would you publish the list, Senator, so people can actually... Sorry? Would you actually consider no, publishing the list? Look, the, the whole purpose of the list is to stop access from people getting access to sites that include pro-rape sites, pro-incest sites, pro child pornography sites and pro-incest sites. I mean, but you could fill that, Senator, and no. still publish the list so people can't actually access it, but there's an element of transparency there whereby they can say, well, look, this, this site's obviously got a bad name to it. It's probably not a good site, but some sites Publishing the innocuous. list would defeat the purpose of having the list. Now, this is a genuine conundrum. <laughs> <laughs> this is a genuine conundrum. Okay, but the it is, is a genuine there. conundrum because the list has been published for you, and that, yeah. this is this is one of the functions the list, of the internet. And the list was published in, in Denmark. The Danish list was published, and it doesn't mean that you're going to stop the operation. I mean, if as you want to take the Louise position, which there should be no list. Okay, there should be no list. We're not going to agree. But if you want to protect, let's go back to the centre. <laughs> well, the, censor, the censorship, though, the classifications board, actually, that's its job. That's what it does. And I would agree if people said that they should have the sole responsibility, and that's something I'm happy to work through with ACMA, because ACMA have admitted now that there's at least one mistake that they've made on the list, at least one out of the 1,300 names, and... There's millions of There's a dentist, there's a tour no, operator. No, 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 let's, let's be clear. Firstly, there's you're again... There's the tour You are... Misquoting highly political. No, I'm happy to come to the anti-abortion side because people should understand what what happened with the anti-abortion side. But again, you're quoting the dentist. I explained very clearly what happened. The Russian mob attached. <laughs> the Russian mob attached material. Okay, now, all right. Of course, Australians are quite right to laugh at such ridiculous explanations. And I think the majority of the Australian public is not falling for this. And certainly there are numerous indications of this in the Australian media, and uh, quite a backlash has started recently over such ridiculous stories as the one from the Real News last week on the Corbett Report. From the Sydney Morning Herald on March 17, 2009, banned hyperlinks could cost you $11,000 a day. And, of course, we talked a little bit about that with Jim Stewart in that interview clip earlier in this episode. But to find out more about how the Australian public is taking this incredibly oppressive censorship scheme, and what the average Australian can do to become involved in the fight against the implementation of this plan, I talked to Geordie Guy of Electronic Frontiers Australia. Electronic Frontiers Australia, or EFA, is a non-profit national organization representing internet users concerned with online freedoms and rights. Geordie Guy is an EFA board member, 
And in our wide-ranging discussion, we talked about some of the technical reasons that this internet censorship scheme is doomed to failure, as well as some of the more profound issues involved in such an Orwellian scheme. So let's listen to a short extract from my conversation earlier this week with Jordi Guy of EFA, which is also running an anti-censorship campaign at NoCleanFeed.com, which provides information about how Australians can get involved in the fight against the Australian internet censorship plan. Well, what can you tell us about the, the way the general public is receiving this proposal? Generally speaking, the proposal has very underwhelming support. Um, within that, we have obviously uh, technologists and people who are really quite tech-savvy who are vitriolically opposed to this. There's been protests in Australian capital cities. There's um, intense online campaigning as well as many, many people inundating their local representatives with letters demanding that they act against the policy. Unfortunately, a lot of the members have replied to those with form letters. Uh, the protests, despite having hundreds of people in each location, haven't got an awful lot of mainstream media play. Um, as far as the other side of it is concerned, there is, there is some support for the proposal within particular niches of Australian society. Predominantly, those niches are fundamentalist Christian organisations, um, Christian moral ethics organisations who generally feel that Australians ought to be more Christian in their moral ethics are petitioning the government pretty hard and assisting them in the fight to try and get this through. I understand that the EFA is running a campaign called No Clean Feed and at NoCleanFeed.com in opposition to the proposed filtering plan. So tell us more about that campaign and what it's hoping to achieve. Our campaign, uh, the No Clean Feed campaign, and the name is I guess, somewhat reminiscent of a similar but optional program that the UK has had for quite some time. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. The Minister has been referring to it as a clean feed program, I guess hoping to pick up on some of the positive aspects of that program here. We run the website NoCleanFeed.com. Uh, we also have a lot of material about this on our website, efa.org.au. And the material on both websites aims to do two things. Largely, uh, it proposes to educate people about this policy in a kind of a bullet point fashion. We really do see in a lot of the publicity that this campaign and this issue gets that there's a little bit of a schism between uh, people who use the internet every day and feel themselves technologically competent and then a flip side of, I guess, what we term middle Australians, for want of a better word, who maybe feel a little bit overwhelmed at the, the techni technicality of the proposal. So there's a lot of informative information on the NoCleanFeed.com website that uh, aims to outline why this is a bad idea and not just a bad idea for quote-unquote internet people. The other half of the campaign the, the public see is the what you can do to get in there and try to help out. Um, tips for how to write to your local members. Uh, there's information on that and as part of a broader campaign that we engage in with other organisations and individuals about how local members have been responding to the letters they've been getting. Um, we also have information available on a Facebook group, on a Twitter uh, account, so we're mobilising social media to try and get the message out there as well. 
Well, picking up on what you say, I think it's important to stress that this isn't uh, just an internet-only issue. It does seem to speak to something more fundamental. So, in your own words, what can you say, say about the way that uh, this this proposal is really going to affect Australians, not only online civil liberties, but civil liberties in general? Yeah, it's long been our uh, our belief, and it's in particular mine, that the online world is really no different to the offline world. It may be presented in a certain way, but it should be under the same sort of rules and under the same sort of beliefs as the offline world. If we give the government the opportunity to compose a list, whatever that list is and however that list is maintained, of information that people can't see, we're trusting the government now and we're trusting the government in a year and five years and 25 and 100 years' time to never, ever use that facility and that infrastructure to hide information from the Australian public with no recourse. Now, already we're seeing, since this has been an issue, that there are Christian ethics organisations, particularly there's a party in Australia called Family First. This is a very religious uh, political party and is headed up by some quite firebrand guys. Already before this has really even been nutted out exactly what is to be blocked from the minister, we're seeing lobbying from these types of organisations about dropping material into the list such as pro-anorexia material, gambling material, abortion material, and we know that there's already uh, at least two websites on the ACMA blacklist that relate to abortion. So these are very real issues offline as well as on. We're concerned that long-term the government will be under a lot of pressure from lobbyists to hide information from the Australian public. And we're already seeing the start of those types of efforts now, so we really feel it's incredibly dangerous to trust the government with this moving forward, or any government. Once again, Geordie Guy of Electronic Frontiers Australia. Now, I think as Geordie Guy effectively pointed out, in that interview clip, and as well in the full interview, which of course is available for download from CorbettReport.com, the Australian public is fighting back against this oppressive censorship scheme. And at the very least, the current Labour government in power in Australia will have a hard time getting this scheme through unchanged. But even that this type of plan has been proposed and is being tested at the moment is a worrying sign for all those concerned not only with online civil liberties, but civil liberties in general. Of course, this, in a way, plays into the theme that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, about the rioting that is likely to start with this provoked summer of rage, and the general discontent that the masses are already feeling about the current economic and political situation in the developed world. But to find out more about how this general trend of discontent might manifest itself in the future, and specifically how it relates to online rights and freedoms and the Australian Internet Censorship Scheme, I recently talked to Gerald Salente of the Trends Research Institute. We've featured an interview with Gerald Salente in a previous episode of this podcast, but he is the founder of the Trends Research Institute, which, since 1980, has been forecasting geopolitical, social, economic, and financial trends in order to help people better understand how current trends are likely to play out in the future. Gerald Salente has had remarkable success in this occupation, not only successfully predicting the 1987 stock market crash and the fall of the Soviet Union, 
but also, of course, the panic of 08, and now the Greatest Depression. Gerald Salente is also predicting the rise of a third party in the United States within the next three years, which will see a progressive libertarian strain of politics come to the fore. So it was with great interest that I recently spoke to Mr. Gerald Salente, and I highly encourage my listeners to check out the entire episode, which of course is available for download at CorbettReport.com. But let's listen to a short interview extract in which I ask Mr. Salente about the Australian internet censorship scheme and how the general trend towards internet censorship is likely to play out in the future. As these alternative political movements stir across the developed world, the current financial political complex will be seeking to defend the status quo, and I think one area that the powers that be will be targeting is the free flow of information across the internet that is making this conversation possible and, of course, helping to organize the resistance to the current crisis. So to what extent do you think the recent Australian internet filtering proposal, for example, is part of a larger thrust toward curtailment of online civil liberties in the developed world generally? And extrapolating on that, how do you see that trend developing in the coming years? Well, net neutrality is going to be a huge issue. And we're even seeing people like this Bill O'Reilly calling with the, with, with people like yourself and what I'm doing, they're, they're because of the, of the power of the Internet, he's, he's equating it to, um, to pedophiles, how they gain, how they gain a, a presence on the Internet. And it appears that anything that isn't done along with the lines of the status quo is attacked as subversive, or as, or as this guy, I mean, is doing it, looking at it as, as illicit and lewd. I mean, what kind of warped mind could put the two together? And, and as I had mentioned yesterday when I was on Fox, and they were running footage of the protests at the G8 meeting, that... Um, uh, the, the, they call the people that were protesting anarchists and and, and, uh, and, and you know all all derisive names. And I and I said, you know, I said, how about calling these people angry? I mean, why do they have to be categorized? So there's going to be this push, kind of like a, a, a fear of terror, that is going to really be a struggle to keep the internet free. However, having said that. We believe that in the uh, in the end, that net neutrality will probably uh, stay at levels that we see now because of the um, the strong internet community. We don't think they're going to let it happen, and government won't be able to legislate it. That's for the short term, by the way. With all of the foregoing in mind it hardly needs to be stressed just how important this issue is not only to online civil liberties in Australia or even online civil liberties around the world, but indeed to the very core fundamental belief of free speech, which is one of the foundational principles of our Western democracies. To say that the free flow of information across the net is one of the few bright rays of hope for freedom and liberty in our society today is something so obvious to listeners of this podcast, which of course would not be possible without the internet, that it hardly needs to be said. But the seriousness of this fight, and just how much is at stake, 
can be garnered from an article like this one from news.com.au on the 5th of February 2009. Electronic Frontiers Australia member Jordy Guy receives death threat over web filter plan. Quote, A death threat has been made against a vocal opponent of the federal government's web filtering plan in a grim escalation of the already heated debate. Online rights campaigner Jordy Guy received a threatening phone message last month after publicly disagreeing with an article supporting the filtering scheme. I got home from work and found a message on my answering machine telling me to keep my name out of the paper, he said. It said to cut the libertarian bull or I'd be sorry. End quote. During our conversation, I had the chance to ask Mr. Guy about this cowardly threat. Well, Jordy Guy, I also note that you've paid a personal price for espousing your opposition to this plan. News.com.au ran an article on the 5th of February 2009 under the headline, Electronic Frontiers Australia member Jordy Guy receives death threat over web filter plan that notes a death threat that you received warning you not to continue talking to the media about the plan, which is particularly ironic given that you're advocating a free speech position. So obviously, you've decided not to cave into these cowardly threats, but what can you tell us about your commitment to fighting this plan, and why is it important for you to continue speaking out on this issue? Well, my wife's been asking me to be quiet now for nine or ten years, and uh, <laughs> when a guy went down to a payphone with 50 cents in his hand to try and intimidate me, that certainly wasn't going to win out of my wife's wishes. <laughs> it's particularly important for free speech to be an important issue for everybody. Um, the types of boarding and strong-arming into the way that people think and the way that people communicate. And my uh, secret admirer over the phone is a good example of this. It's so important for people in this world to communicate with each other openly, to communicate their feelings, their thoughts. This is the very way that we got out of the caves and put down the clubs millions of years ago. Um, the internet is probably the most acute example of this that mankind has. And this is particularly why it's important to me, why I joined EFA, why I ran for the board, and apparently why I attracted the attentions of this, uh, this payphone person. That's why it's important to me, and it's going to take an awful lot more than a threat like that to make me stop. Well, Mr. Guy, I salute you for your decision to continue fighting on this issue, and I encourage my listeners to take up the cause for themselves and let their voices be heard on this issue, because it's not an issue that we can afford to sit on the fence or remain quiet about. And I certainly hope that they will join you in this cause. So tell people once again how they can find out more info about the EFA and the No Clean Feed campaign. Well, if they, uh, they want to follow EFA underscore Oz on Twitter, we, uh, we have quite a few uh, Twitter bits of information that go out like that. They can also look us up on Facebook, just doing a search for EFA. If they wanted to head over to efa.org.au, that's our website, which has a lot of reasonably uh, regularly updated information sort of every couple of days about the state of play, and also the specific nocleanfeed.com website has more or less anything that your listeners need to do to get across this campaign, um, get up to speed and see what they can do to lend a hand. They can join our association, uh, make a donation, or even if they just do something even so simple as to send an email to a, uh, a politician and say, you know what, I don't think that's okay. It can start there, 
he can go forward as far as you like. I don't expect people to come home in the evening to their answering machine messages and hear a threat. There's a big spectrum of things you can do. If enough people get behind this, we will defeat it. We're already seeing some shakes in the, uh, the foundations of the plan. So get informed and then uh, see what you can do to help us out. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment. If we don't do anything, then it will happen. And if we fight against it, it will fall. So, Jordi Guy, I salute you and your efforts. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today on the Corbett Report. Not a problem. Thank you very much for having me on. Indeed, there is little doubt that this fight in Australia to keep the Internet free is about much more than just Australians' access to the Internet. It's about a shared foundational belief in democracy itself and the idea of free speech. And if we allow this scheme to proceed as it's currently going, there's a very real possibility that I will very soon have to be bidding my Australian listeners goodbye as the great firewall of Australia is erected around that fine continent. I could not urge my Australian listeners enough to go to NoCleanFeed.com to find out more about how they can actively take part in fighting this oppressive censorship scheme, nor could I more wholeheartedly urge them to get involved in the info war and spreading information about the encroaching police state in Australia. This is something that we've talked about before on the Corbett Report, and I would encourage listeners who have not done so to listen to my interview with Trevor Warner from last year about one aspect of that cashless society police state control grid. But of course, another great source of information is We Are Change Brisbane. So please go to the documentation list for today's episode to find a link to their website where you can find out more about their great activism and, of course, their YouTube page, where you can find many very important reports about different aspects of the police state in Australia. And, of course, this is not an Australian-only issue. So, to all of my listeners in America, in Canada, in England, in Germany, in Austria, in Japan, of course, Internet freedom is something that must be jealously safeguarded. And when we make our voice heard on this issue, it does have an effect. Partial evidence of that is that Senator Conroy in Australia is now backing off from the original rhetoric, which would have seen much of the internet blocked to Australians, and now only a specific part of the ACMA blacklist is supposedly going to be filtered when this plan goes ahead. But that's simply not good enough. We have to stop this plan, and we have to stop the Cyber Security Act of 2009 from passing in America, and we have to protect online freedoms generally in the Western world. Use the internet while it's at your disposal to get this word out to others. Otherwise, it's goodbye Australia. That's it for this week's episode. I am your host James Corbett inviting you to join me next week for episode 83 of the Corbett Report, Food World Order.
But again, you're quoting the dentist. So I explained very clearly what happened. The Russian mob attached... <laughs> the Russian mob attached Mitsiri. OK, now, all right. No, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm here from...